the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is producing, Clark Hilton engineering, Dan Rice is giving up the use of his office for the sake of the cause. Today we're going to talk with John Lott. His latest book is Gun Control Myths, How Politicians, the Media, and Botched Studies, in quotes, have twisted the facts on gun control. Learn the actual facts that debunk them. He'll be joining us later this hour on the Georgine Rice Show. We begin with a look at some of the news stories of the last 12 hours. A Chicago shootout near a funeral home sparked the search for suspects, which I believe has been somewhat successful. At least they have a person of interest that they've questioned. Chicago police were continuing their search early Wednesday for suspects who scattered in multiple directions after a mass shooting outside a city funeral home. The attack left 14 people wounded, drew new criticism for the city's leadership after a concerted pushback against the president's call for federal intervention against big city violence. Authorities said a person of interest was being interviewed, but no arrests were immediately reported. The gunfire that erupted was the latest chapter of violence gripping that city. All we saw was just bodies laying everywhere. One witness said, speaking to a local television station in Chicago, shot up everywhere, all over, legs, stomachs, back, all over the place. We thought it was a war out here. Well, that seems to be what many people have said over the last weeks and months. Chicago's Lori Lightfoot tweeted against um, the president um, as bullets flew outside that funeral home, and Chicago police warned about the possibility of the shooting. Uh, Giuliani and Carrick criticized Chicago's mayor after the mass shooting. And what's behind the violent shooting there? Well, that's an open question at this point. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi torched President Trump in their back and forth war of words on Tuesday, calling the coronavirus the Trump virus in an effort to blame the president's response for the ongoing pandemic. For the first time since April, Trump on Tuesday revived the White House Coronavirus Task Force briefings rather, and urged Americans to wear masks, warning the pandemic would probably get worse before it gets better. He also repeatedly referred to the COVID-19 as the China virus. Speaking to CNN, though, Pelosi suggested the president's efforts were too little too late. I think with the president's comments today, he has recognized the mistakes that he's made by now embracing mask wearing and the recognition that this is not a hoax. It is a pandemic that has gotten worse before it gets better because of his inaction. And in fact, clearly it is the Trump virus, Pelosi said. Politicians, I tell you, they're so frustrating. The things they say to and about one another, like being back in kindergarten sometimes. New Yorkers' frustration with Mayor Bill de Blasio boiled over on Tuesday as a banner showing the Democrat wearing a T-shirt featuring the late Marxist revolutionary Che Guevara and holding the severed head of the Statue of Liberty was unfurled on the Staten Island Expressway. Well, the banner's artist, Scott Lobato, he explained the banner to the New York Post saying, it's what we are doing here in New York. He's severing the head of the greatest city on earth. New York has turned into, well, I won't say what he said it's turning into, 
But he said because of this guy, he hates the true New Yorkers, police officers, firefighters, people who built this city, end quote. Well, California City has washed away a Black Lives Matter mural after a Trump supporter requested a MAGA 2020 display. Equal time was required, so they simply eliminated the BLM mural. A Florida man is battling with coronavirus after his son brings it home and infects the entire family. And they're telling us that's more likely how you're going to contract it within your family circle. And these N95 masks aren't likely to stop the coronavirus, according to some health experts. They're the best thing. They're not the best thing. It's hard to know what to believe these days. George Floyd, his death, a Minnesota judge has lifted the gag order in the case against the former police officers involved. Coronavirus led 33 percent of Americans to make credit harming decisions, according to a new study. And the uh, Trump's Fed pick, Shelton Waller may see smooth sailing in Powell's central bank, they're telling us. And late taxpayers should file now or face larger bills, the IRS warns. That grace period is drawing to a close. Planned Parenthood finally is succumbing to grips with the racism of its founder. Karen Seltzer, the chair of the New York Affiliate Board, said the removal of Margaret Sanger's name from our building is both necessary and overdue step to reckon with our legacy and acknowledge Planned Parenthood contributions to historical reproductive harm within communities of color. Our former reproductive harm within communities of color. So I would assume then, based on that statement, that they're no longer aborting African-American babies and brown babies, for that matter, in record numbers. So much so that some within the black community refer to it as a genocide. So this is good news, I suppose. They remain okay however, with killing babies. On June 6, Alexandria DeSanctis um, wrote, I wonder, too, whether these crusaders will train their gaze on one of our nation's far more serious offenders of racial equality, Planned Parenthood founder Margaret Sanger. She was, after all, a foremost proponent of the eugenics movement, motivated by her particular animus toward poor non-whites, and her campaign to legalize birth control was motivated in large part by her desire to prevent the unfit and feeble-minded from reproducing. Katie Pavlich also weighed in, saying that slavery in America ended. Planned Parenthood's racist and eugenic mission, led by Sanger, continues every day. Planned Parenthood ends black lives, which was her goal, every day. This is simply a way to continue the cover-up while carrying out her evil goals. Well, thousands crowded the streets and chanted somewhat more peacefully earlier in the day here in the city of Portland, but massive angry crowds have continued. Now the attention is shifted away from the damage that's been done and is being done to federal officers who are civilians, by the way, in the city of Portland. Portland claims there are no gatherings allowed of more than 25 people unless, of course, you're chanting something against the police or federal um, officers. Uh, they looted and set fires once again as well. Town Hall's Julio Rosas looks at the hypocrisy of the New York Times and the polar opposite ways that they frame this as opposed to how they um, how they frame similar events and protests of the Tea Party. Eric Erickson argues to let Portland burn, but we're not going to let that happen. And of course, it's a gross overstatement of what's happening in the area of downtown Portland. Ted Cruz has introduced a bill to force city leaders to protect the citizens from an op-ed he wrote. Local leaders who allow rioters to destroy lives and businesses need to be held accountable. That's why I'm introducing the Restitution for Economic Losses Caused by Leaders Who Allow Insurrection and Mayhem Act, Reclaim for short. Well, the bill would hold state and local officials liable when they abdicate their legal duty to protect the public in cases where death, serious bodily harm or significant property damage have occurred. 
And over a dozen have been shot in Chicago at a funeral home at the service uh, for the shooting victim. About the time the gunfire rang out, the mayor of Chicago was tweeting this. Under no circumstances will I allow Donald Trump's troops to come to Chicago and terrorize our residents. She has since slightly rolled that back, calling for a partnership rather than a dictatorship with federal uh, agents. Larry Elder points out that a Chicago funeral leaves at least 14 wounded. This after last weekend, which left 12 dead. How many Confederate generals were spotted leaving the scene of the crime? Google is being accused of blacklisting conservative websites. Town Hall, PragerU, and Red State among them, but the list is much longer. Another story notes that the search engine Powerhouse, which uh, lamented President Trump's election in 2016 and published a document entitled The Good Censor, was no longer showing results for conservative sites like The National Pulse, Breitbart, Citizen Free Press, The Daily Caller, Red State, The Bongino Report, and others. Well, the American Spectator noticed they, too, had vanished in Google. Rod Dreyer points out that so apparently it's happening to other conservative writers and websites, too, this sudden blacklisting by Google. It is a conscious choice by Google or a hack, he's asking. Whatever the truth, it's a reminder that Google has far too much control over information access. Molly Hemingway points out that one might assume it's more a test run of how to be more effectively uh, interfering in the 2020 U.S. election than anything else. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break, but we will be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Just a reminder, John Lott will join us in our next segment. Gun Control Myths is the title of his book. Well, Atlantic Magazine has finally admitted that the police abolitionist story they published was based on a false narrative. But that came after being confronted repeatedly by the Federalist, who did the homework the Atlantic editors neglected. David Harsini points out that in the old days, a piece like this would be pulled and someone would be in big trouble. Today, you get bogus clarifications and no one cares. As AC once put it, the moral truth is more important than the factual one. (laughs) Well, Democrats are planning, um, well, some pretty tricky moves if they take the Senate from the discussion with Democrat Chuck Schumer when asked by reporters if, like presumptive Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden, he would be open to ending the filibuster. He said it would be up for discussion if Democrats who currently hold 47 Senate seats win the majority. Job number one is for us to get the majority. We don't take anything for granted, but it's looking better and better, he said. Once we get the majority, we'll discuss it in our caucus. Nothing's off the table. Seems to me some things should be off the table. Well, Major League Baseball defends its um, disrespecting of the national anthem, justifying those who kneel in their official tweets. Already fans are calling for a boycott. It hasn't even started. I think the first game comes up on Thursday. Well, as reported by ABC News, the Justice Department has announced an 11-count indictment charging two alleged Chinese hackers accused of uh, carrying out a massive global cyber intrusion campaign on behalf of the Chinese government in which they stole hundreds of millions of dollars worth of trade secrets and most recently sought to target companies conducting research for the COVID-19 vaccine. Meanwhile, China, China rather, on Wednesday condemned what it called an unprecedented escalation by the United States and threatened to retaliate after it was ordered to close the Chinese consulate in Houston. State Department spokesperson Morgan Ortagas confirmed the direct and said it was issued to protect American intellectual property and American private information. Furthermore, documents were burned inside the consulate's courtyard Tuesday evening. 
Well, the president signed a legally contentious memo preventing illegal immigrants from being counted in congressional redistricting as a result of the uh, uh, census. And what in the uh, blank an actual quote from Senate Republicans, are we doing? Senate Republicans are clashing over the coronavirus relief bill and what should be in it. Monopolistic Google is testing its ability to blacklist conservative media ahead of the election, according to the Federalist and other observers. And the FBI is investigating Joe Biden's 2008 campaign for corruption. Ohio House Speaker Larry Householder and four others have been arrested in a $60 million nuclear power plant bribery case. And the defense secretary says the U.S. is considering adjustments to troops in South Korea as the Pentagon strategizes against China. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo is seeking a U.S.-U.K. coalition against the disgraceful Chinese Communist Party. Well, the pandemic will likely get worse before it gets better, the president says in a somber return to the coronavirus briefing. And the U.S. daily coronavirus death toll has now exceeded 1,000 for the first time since May. Presumptive um, Democratic presidential nominee Biden is staying silent as Catholic churches and statues are burned and vandalized in a string of targeted attacks. And more than a dozen people were shot near a Chicago funeral home. Yet the mayor ironically says under no circumstances will I allow Donald Trump's troops to come to Chicago and terrorize our residents. Of course, there are federal um, law enforcement officers who are civilians and not troops there already. She's since backtracked that and softened somewhat. As um, crime skyrockets in New York City, the mayor has 27 officers a day guarding a Black Lives Matter mural. Finally getting the message, on Margaret Sanger, Planned Parenthood of Greater New York, has removed the founder's name from the flagship office over her support of eugenics, but abortions continue at pace. Minnesota bans neck restraints and chokeholds, saying this is only a first step in their efforts. The awakening comes for American classical music. The New York Times chief critic has launched a campaign to end the merit-based blind audition hiring process for orchestras. So a blind audition, which... Uh, advances someone based on merit is no longer acceptable in these times. Well, birds of a feather flock together. The top World Health Organization official is promoting a conspiracy theory website to bolster China's coronavirus disinformation campaign. The Washington Free Beacon goes into greater detail. And Africa is starting to have second thoughts about all that Chinese money they're enjoying. Well, cashing in on COVID, Amazon's Jeff Bezos has a record single-day wealth increase of $13 billion. His net worth is up $74.4 billion this year alone. On this day in history, 1862, President Abraham Lincoln presents to his cabinet a preliminary draft of the Emancipation Proclamation. Thank you, Jesus. 1937, the U.S. Senate rejects President Franklin Delano Roosevelt's proposal to add more justices to the Supreme Court. On this day in 1942, the Nazis begin transporting Jews from the Warsaw Ghetto to the Treblinka concentration camp. 1942 as well, gasoline rationing involving the use of coupons begins along the Atlantic seaboard. 1975, the House of Representatives joins the Senate in voting to restore the American citizen ship of Confederate General Robert E. Lee. This is 1975, the U.S. House of Representatives. Well, what's happening in downtown Portland is being told, well, two different ways, but many different ways. And at some point, it comes down to who you believe, the federal government or the protesters and their allies. Monday night's protest at the federal courthouse in downtown Portland began peacefully, but ended again 
with an unlawful assembly. Hundreds of people showed up early, including a group of moms and a group of dads. But according to Portland police, things went downhill around 12.30 a.m., when people should be at home in their beds, when demonstrators started trying to break into the federal courthouse, which eventually brought federal agents out from the inside and, you know, the rest of that scenario. Well, the acting secretary of the U.S. Department of Homeland Security on Tuesday doubled down on the need for federal officers in Portland, forcefully rebuking local leaders for failing to curb the nightly lawlessness in and around the downtown federal courthouse. If you did your job from a local perspective, we wouldn't be here Chad Wolf says, what we have in Portland is very different than what we have in any other city. Well, he blamed city decisions that have led to a lack of coordination between local police and federal agencies needed to handle what he called a persistent criminal element continuing to cause destruction in Portland. Wolf said that the um, uh, stemming the 20 uh, that stemmed rather from the 2018 uh, event when Portland officials took hands off uh, that approach and restricted police from helping federal officers respond to an encampment outside the headquarters of the U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement Office in southwest Portland. Wolf described it as a pattern I'm concerned about. At a news conference at Homeland Security headquarters, Wolf um, stood with the deputy director of the Federal Protective Services, the acting secretary of U.S. Customs and Border Protection, to defend their officers' authority at the Mark O. Hatfield U.S. Courthouse in the wake of weeks of demonstrations against police violence and systematic racism, as well as federal facilities. And while President Trump has said the enhanced federal presence has quelled the protests, larger crowds of demonstrators have turned out in downtown on recent nights and echoed calls by Governor Kate Brown and Portland Mayor Ted Wheeler to get the aggressive paramilitary squads out of the city. The government agents have responded on and off federal property, arresting people suspected of vandalizing federal buildings, shining green lasers or throwing fireworks at them, bottles and other objects. Later on Tuesday, the mayor of Portland said in a statement that the federal intervention is uninvited, untrained and unwelcome. The Oregon uh, U.S. Attorney's Office said there's a There had been 24 federal arrests as of Sunday and 13 people charged. The other 11 were arrested on suspicion of crime and released without being charged, according to a spokesman for the office. Another seven people were arrested late Monday into Tuesday on federal allegations. The charges have included assault on federal officer, destruction of federal property and attempted arson. The Federal Protective Services in Portland asked Customs and Border Protection and U.S. Immigration and Customs for help late in June, and that began their presence there. Chris Klein, deputy director of the Federal Protective Service, says our staff was quickly overwhelmed under existing federal code and with no additional powers extended by the president. The secretary of Homeland Security may uh, cross uh, designate employees transferred to the Federal Protective Service. Uh, to protect federally owned property, Klein and Wolf noted, according to the federal code, these officers can uh, make arrests without a warrant for any offense against the United States committed in the presence of the officer or agent or for any felony and conduct investigations on and off the property in question of offenses that may have been uh, committed against property owned or occupied by the federal government or persons on that property. So without any uh, further authority from the president, this is an authority they already have that uh, the city of Portland has made quite clear is most unwelcome. We'll revisit that when we return um, at the top of the hour. But coming up, we're going to hear from John Lott. He's the author of Gun Control Myths. You're going to help us understand what's true, what's false, and what's uh, what we are very likely hearing 
that is questionable. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. My next guest, Dr. John Lott, has few equals as a perceptive analyst of controversial public policy issues. That's a quote from Milton Freeman, who's a Nobel laureate, um, talking about uh, John Lott and the role that he has played in helping us understand and discuss controversial issues with, uh, with reason and with facts. Dr. Lott is the president of Crime Prevention Research Center, an economist and a world-recognized expert on guns and crime. He's held research or teaching positions at various academic institutions and was the chief economist at the United States Sentencing Commission. He holds a Ph.D. in economics from UCLA. As I mentioned, Milton Friedman said it best when he said that he is a perceptive analyst of controversial public policy issues, and we're going to talk about one of them here today. Dr. Lott is a prolific author for both academic and popular publications. He's published over 100 articles in peer-reviewed academic journals, and this is his 10th book we'll be talking about today, Gun Control Myths. His previous nine books included More Guns, Less Crime, The Bias Against Guns, and uh, Freedomnomics, and many, many others. Uh, He joins us today to talk about his latest book that blows away one false myth about gun ownership after another. Myths about mass public shootings, to suicide, to gun ownership rates, to crime to gun-free zones. He addresses the claims you frequently hear in the media, and he explains what's wrong with those claims. Dr. Lott, it is such an honor to have you with us. Welcome. It's good to talk to you again. Thanks. Uh, you, uh, the, the book begins with a foreword from a familiar name to many of us, Andrew Pollack, who is the author of Why Meadow Died, The People and Policies That Created the Parkland Shooter and Endanger America's uh, students, and he begins by writing, I was never big on Second Amendment, I was never a big Second Amendment supporter, rather, until my daughter Meadow was murdered on the third floor of Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland School shooting. I think his opening line uh, reflects what a lot of people think until an event occurs, they're suddenly interested, but perhaps uh, only have a collection of anecdotal information or evidence as to the, the use and abuse of guns. Uh, to inform their thinking on what ought to be done in response. Um, why why have this as your foreword? Well, I mean, I think uh, Andrew's uh, change in views over time, uh, you know, I've, I've also changed my views a lot over time with regard to the gun issue. Uh, our transformations were a little bit different. I mean, obviously, he had that incredibly horrible, tragic event where uh, his daughter was murdered. Uh, for me, it was more a question of just kind of looking at the data and and seeing that a lot of the things that I thought were true weren't true. I mean, I'm sure I was affected as much by the media coverage as anybody on the on the gun issue. Um, but you know, it's uh, Andrew's change in views is something that's actually fairly common. The main reason why most Americans own guns is for self protection. And and probably one of the very most important reasons uh, in terms of kind of percentages of people who have guns for protection is because they've been victims of crime. Uh, so they know kind of firsthand that they wish that they had some way of protecting themselves uh, when uh, such a crime occurred. And, you know, in Andrew's case, I'm sure he wishes that uh, others at uh, Stoneman Douglas High School uh, had been also able to protect themselves. 
And yet there are those who would suggest that it's only law enforcement that should have access to guns and to decide when to shoot. In fact, Michael Bloomberg uh, in January of this year made that very statement, suggesting that even though the unarmed were victims in uh, mass shootings, that law enforcement, who in some cases either weren't present or were not responsive uh, quickly enough, weren't able to protect them. Well, I mean, he was talking about specifically about uh, the mass public shooting that was stopped uh, at the church near Fort Worth at the end of last December. Uh, he, he was saying, you know, it's true, uh, concealed care permit holders uh, stopped the shooting, but, uh, you know, we should just rely on the police to be able to go and stop these attacks. The problem is, you know, we have a little bit over 600,000 police in the United States. Uh, you don't have more than 250,000 on duty at any point in time. Uh, and we have 330 million people. It's simply impossible for the police to be every place all the time. And look, anybody who's read my research knows uh, that I think police are extremely important in reducing crime. Yes. Indeed, you know, I think that I think police, from my research, are the most important factor for reducing crime. But something that the police understand themselves, and that is they virtually always arrive on the crime scene after the crimes occurred. And that's even under the best of circumstances. Uh, unfortunately, nowadays, the job that police have is even much more difficult than it's been before. I mean, we have, uh, you know, you're in Portland. Uh, obviously, uh, you know the situation with uh, police standing down and not doing their jobs. Uh, you have many parts of the country where uh, parts police units are being disbanded, budgets are being cut. Uh, it seems pretty simple to me to understand that if you want to reduce crime, you make it riskier for criminals to commit crime. And the way you do that is by increasing arrest rates, increasing. Yeah, here's the irony. The irony is that the very same politicians like Bloomberg, who in the past have said, you know, you shouldn't defend yourself. You should depend on the police. You have a lot of Democrats now who are saying, uh, you should depend on the police, but we're going to order the police not to help you, or they're not going to be available to help you. There's a whole range of myths. Simple example is what should people do when they're having to confront a criminal? Um, very frequently, uh, you'll hear the claim in the media that people should behave passively, that that's the safest course of action. And that, that's simply false. Uh, there's a kernel of truth to it, but it's actually extremely misleading. Um, if you uh, look the passive behavior is slightly safer than all forms of active resistance lumped together. But it's very misleading to lump all forms of active resistance together because some are much more dangerous than passive behavior and a couple are much safer. So, for example, for a woman, by far the most dangerous course of action for a woman to take is to use her fist. And the reason for that is she's almost always going to be confronted by a male criminal and there's a large strength differential that exists there. The second most dangerous course of action for a woman to take is to run away. Now, if she can run away and escape, that's great. But unfortunately, women tend to be relatively slower runners on average than men are, particularly for young male criminals who are the ones who are most likely to be doing the attack. In the process of being tackled and subdued um, and resulting violence after that, women are likely uh, to be seriously injured. Uh, when you break down all the different types of active resistance, you find that by far the safest course of action for anybody, but particularly true for 
people who are relatively weaker physically, women and the elderly, uh, is to have a gun. Uh, women who behave passively are about 2.4 times more likely to end up being seriously injured than a woman who has a gun. Um, so, I mean, that's just one example of, uh, of the type of information out there in the media that I think actually endangers people's lives. Yeah. Let me ask you about it. Let me ask you about another one that you uh, write about in the book. America, this is the New York Times and Vox.com's claim. America has six times as many firearm homicides as Canada and nearly 16 times as many as Germany. First of all, is that a good comparison? Is it relevant? And is it true? Yeah, well, uh, there are lots of problems with the comparison. I mean, uh, first of all, um, what people don't seem to understand is that homicides aren't the same thing as murders. Um, Homicides are murders plus the United States has a lot more justifiable homicides than any place else in the world, at least as far as the data goes. Most countries don't collect that. There are very few countries that actually report murder rates. They report homicide rates, uh, probably, you know, over 20 25% 25% of the homicides in the United States are justifiable. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's not obvious to me why you want to mix together murders and justifiable homicides. If uh, a woman shoots somebody uh, who's broken into her house at two o'clock in the morning, a rapist, uh, why that should be the same as, let's say, a criminal uh, involved in a robbery going and killing somebody. Um, you know, the second thing is uh, uh, you have to, you know, if you look at total murders, uh, you know, you in fact find that the United States is well below the average for the world and well below the median. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, if you look at uh, firearm homicides, one of the problems that you have is that a lot of countries, about half the countries in the world, don't even report firearm homicides. And the reason why they don't report, uh, well, the problem with it is that the countries that don't report firearm homicides are the countries that tend to have the highest uh, homicide rates. And so the reason why the United States looks relatively high in terms of firearm homicides isn't because we're particularly high. It's just because the countries with higher rates aren't reporting the data. Uh, so there are lots of problems with that. And um, uh you know, I could go on, but it's, uh, uh, you know, I think that gives you a rough idea of the uh, yeah, issues. Yeah. Yeah. Now we're going to take a quick break, but we'll continue our conversation. Again, we're talking this afternoon about with John Lott about the book, Guns, Gun Control Myths. So stay with us. We'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Dr. John Lott. Uh, His latest book, uh, Gun Control Myths, uh, blows away one false myth about gun ownership after another. And we've been talking about a few of them. One that I want you to address is uh, that you mentioned in the book is there have been more than 1,600 mass shootings since Sandy Hook. And on average, there is around one mass shooting for each day in America. First of all, is that a true statement? Uh, that is sadly believed by many people. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess it depends on how you want to go and define it. If you define it in terms of the way the FBI is traditionally in terms of uh, four or more people killed in uh, a public place that's not part of 
some other type of crime. Uh, that's not even remotely close to being true. What these numbers involve would be, um, you know, you could have four people wounded or three people wounded or two, um, and they very frequently involve some type of crime occurring, like a gang fight over drug turf. Now, are gang fights over drug turf important? Yeah, sure. Uh, people don't want gangs fighting against each other and killing people and having stray bullets go all over the place. But what I would argue is that the way that claim is made, it makes people think about school shootings or other types mm -hmm. of shootings that may occur. And that's not what we're talking about here. And the causes and solutions for stopping gang shootings uh, drug gang shootings are dramatically different than the causes and solutions for going and stopping things like a mass public shooting at a Walmart or at a, a, a school. And I think it's just improper to kind of go and mix those two numbers together. And the vast majority of the cases uh, that you're just listing out are basically drug gang cases. I mean, you can go and look at murders generally in the United States, which you're picking up a lot with that type of number. And uh, you have over half the murders in the United States take place in just 2% of the counties. And if you go and you look at what's called a murder map, where you can go and see kind of how the murders are spread out within those counties, you'll find pretty much about two-thirds of the murders in those counties, and that 2% of the counties take place within 10 block areas. So they're very heavily concentrated in tiny areas. And again, it's, it's basically drug gangs uh, fighting against each other over drug turf. Um, so, uh, you know, it's, uh, it, it depends on how you want to go and define it. And um, it's, I'm not saying that those drug gang fights aren't important, but I, I think it's wrong to mix the two together. Yeah, it is certainly misleading. New York Times claims that fewer guns equal fewer deaths. Is that true, uh, or could it be true if we had fewer guns? No, I mean, the opposite's very clearly the case. I mean, I'll just give you a simple example, and that is, can you name me one place in the world, any place in the world, where either all guns or all handguns have been banned and murder rates have gone down or even stayed the same? Because I can't find a place, and nobody has pointed to a place that I know of, Every single time you've had those types of bans, murder rates have gone up, and they've often gone up by very large amounts. And there's a simple point to be made there, because uh, you think out of randomness there'd be once where it didn't go up, uh, that when you go and you have strict gun control regulations, you have to be careful that it's not the most law-abiding disarming relative to criminals. Look, where do criminals get their guns? Uh, probably the most common place for them to go and get them is from drug dealers. You know, drug dealers, it's not like a drug dealer can go to the police and say, look, this other gang stole my drugs. Can you help us get them back? They have to. They have very valuable property, and they have to essentially set up their own little militaries in order to go and protect that valuable property that they have. So they have lots of guns, and they sell guns just as they go, and they sell the drugs that they have. And, uh, you know, if... Um, if you think you're going to be any more successful in stopping criminals from getting guns than you've been able to stop criminals from buying illegal drugs, if that's what they want to buy, good luck with that. You know, you want an example of that? Just look at Mexico. Mexico, has had, since 1972, has had one gun store in the country. 
the most powerful uh, gun you can buy is a 22 caliber uh, rifle uh, legally since 1972. Those aren't the types of weapons that uh, drug gangs in Mexico are using. And yet Mexico has a murder rate that's at least six times higher than the murder rate than we have in here in the United States. And, uh, uh, you know, it's illegal for private transfers of guns. Every, any gun you have to buy has to go through the, uh, the one gun store run by the military in Mexico City. And yet, uh, with the extremely high murder rate, the gangs have no problem getting guns. They bring in guns from around the world, just as they go and bring in the drugs from around the world. Uh, and they have the weapons in order to protect the valuable property that they have. You have a chapter on the heroes that the news media doesn't cover. You rarely see the word hero connected with uh, the use of a firearm. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because firearms are used extensively in a self-protection of people and property. Right. Well, I mean, uh, the chapter that I have mainly focuses on uh, the heroes who have stopped mass public shootings. Uh, obviously, they're the broader type that you're talking about. But, you know, here you have cases uh, where dramatic, heroic actions have taken, and they just don't get anything other than maybe one or two stories in the local news. Um, you know, just last week in Indiana, there was a case where uh, uh, an attacker uh, had shot a couple people, had shot at a third person, uh, a passerby in a car who had a permanent concealed handgun, got out and stopped the person. The police uh, captain, uh, who gave a statement to the media, said that there was no doubt in her mind that many lives were saved as a result of the permit holder that was there and his quick actions. And yet, you know, you're going to search in national news coverage about that case. Um, uh, there are dozens of cases in just the last few years where concealed carry permit holders have stopped what otherwise would have been a mass public shooting. Um, and I can only think of a couple times where those have gotten any national news coverage. And the national media has botched them in both cases. In one case, I mean, people remember the synagogue shooting in Pittsburgh. Well, three days after that, uh, there was a shooting at a Kroger grocery store in Louisville, Kentucky, where a man went into the grocery store and started shooting blacks who were in the, the store there. And uh, the quote that made the New York Times and would be on ABC, CBS, NBC, Meet the Press, and all the other national shows uh, was that the, the murderer turned to a customer there and said, whites don't shoot whites. And so the impression that the national media gave was that, you know, this murderer was assuring, was giving reassurance to this white customer that he had nothing to worry about because the murderer was white and he was white and, uh, and the murderer wasn't going to kill him also. The problem was uh, the national media all left out the first part of the murderer's quote and the, and the local media in Louisville covered this, but the first part of the quote was, please don't shoot me, whites don't shoot whites. That rather than the murderer assuring the customer that the customer wasn't going to get shot, the customer, in fact, was a concealed carry permit holder and was pointing his gun at the murderer, and the murderer was begging the customer not to shoot him. Huh. And uh, they, in fact, uh, exchanged shots 
the customer seriously wounded uh, the murderer there. The murderer got into his car, uh, started to drive away, got about a mile down the street before he passed out. Uh, and the police arrested him when he was passed out in the car. Uh, but, you know, I, at the time, up till that time, I was kind of had a texting relationship with Chuck Todd, uh, the moderator for Meet the Press. And uh, Chuck spent like five minutes on his show on uh, the Louisville thing, kind of emphasizing the racial a- aspect of it. And I said, you know, Chuck, you're missing the first part of this quote here. Uh, I think it really changes the meaning of uh, what you were getting across because you made no mention of the permit holder who stopped this. And maybe next week you can kind of, uh, you know, correct this. And I sent him links to the local news articles that had the full quote there. And he never corrected it. And uh, he, uh, he he blocked me after that. Huh. So, um uh, but, you know, unfortunately, I think, look, I think the entire gun control debate would be dramatically different if two things happened. If one, that once in a while, these stories where people use guns to stop these mass public shootings got some attention. Uh, and they're often very dramatic cases. I mean, I can give you lots of cases. Everybody remembers the Orlando uh, nightclub uh, shooting, the Pulse nightclub. Well, uh, just a week after that, in South Carolina, there was almost a similar attack that had occurred. A man had gone into the nightclub that started firing, had wounded several people. And the fourth person he was shooting at had a permanent concealed handgun and uh, and seriously wounded the attacker. The difference between Florida and South Carolina, though, was Florida is one of 10 states that ban people being able to carry permanent concealed handguns into uh, into places that serve alcohol. Uh, South Carolina is one of the 40 states that allow it. And so, you know, um, but you would think, given the sensitivities to the fact that you just had this big nightclub shooting, which at that time was the worst mass public shooting we had had uh, in U.S. history, you would think that there'd be a little coverage for the South Carolina case, but it got like no coverage. Yeah, it doesn't fit um, the narrative. I can, right. I can give you case after case like that. Uh, uh, and it just, my guess is, as I say, the debate would be very different uh, if even some of those cases got coverage. The other point would be uh, when the media covers mass public shootings, um, they almost always mention two facts. One is, what gun was used and how the person obtained the gun. Often, many times they were wrong in terms of the initial news stories because those are hard pieces of information to get. But the interesting thing is you have 94% of the mass public shootings take place in gun-free zones. And yet you will look in vain to find any of the news articles actually mention that fact. And yet that's probably the simplest thing for the media to go and find out. You would think... If even once in a while the media would mention we've had another yet another mass public shooting in a place where guns are banned, again, I think that would cause people to think, you know, why is it that these killers are purposely trying to target those areas where people aren't able to go and defend themselves? And I think people would understand why they're doing that, because yeah. they want to kill as many people as possible. And if they go to a place where people can't defend themselves, 
uh, it's going to be easier for them to accomplish that. Well, we are out of time. There's so much more that we could cover, but I hope our listeners will pick up a copy of Gun Control Myths, How Politicians, the Media, and Botched Studies Have Twisted the Facts on Gun Control. In fact, you have an entire uh, chapter on one particular study that fooled the world about the U.S. share of mass public shootings, a chapter absolutely worth reading. I thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us, and I look forward to uh, having a conversation again in the future. Well, I appreciate you having me on. And yeah, I think this is probably one of my best books, and I pr- appreciate you letting me talk about it. Thank Absolutely. You. People can Absolutely. find more at our website at crimeresearch.org. Crimeresearch.org. Thank you so much. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. If you're just joining us, I want to encourage you to check out the podcast. I had a conversation with John Lott. His latest book, Gun Control Myths, uh, was the subject of our conversation. That's the subject of his latest book, and it's definitely worth hearing. Well, taking a look at um, what's happening elsewhere, Family Research Council Executive Vice President Lieutenant General William G. Boykin He joined 46 retired flag rank officers in signing an open letter published in today's Washington Times that supports the president's authority to stop the ongoing rioting and lawlessness in America's cities. The signatories include 42 Army officers, four Air Force officers, one retired Navy officer. The letter states, and I'm just going to share some excerpts from it, we are retired flag rank officers who support President Trump's recent declarations that the tolerance of widespread rioting and lawlessness by various U.S. state and local political authorities is unacceptable. Furthermore, we write in opposition to the criticism by those who have claimed or implied that the deployment of the military to quell unchecked urban rioting would be an authoritarian departure from American history. Such claims are ill-informed and dangerous. To be clear, none of us want to see the active military used in a civil law enforcement, civil unrest role, unless all other options have been exhausted. As members of the military, we have seen the effects that war, killing, and violence have upon civilian populations. The predictions and uh, and I should say predations and crimes visited upon the innocent when law and order have vanished are horrible. That is true whenever it, um, uh, whether it be in Mogadishu, Mosul, uh, Benghazi, or New York City. If the political leadership of a state and municipality refuses to stop an outbreak of violence or uh, an insurrection that endangers the lives of American citizens, the president has been empowered to act by the Constitution and Congress through the Insurrection Act of 1807 to use the military to restore order. With respect to the use of the military, we include both the National Guard and active duty military units. Now, the president has not invoked that authority. He hinted at it, but has not done so. In fact, I I believe his uh, advisors have advised him not to take that tack. We certainly have not exhausted all resources, but nonetheless, they went on to write, state governors are empowered to deploy the Guard, as the governor of Minnesota did recently. The Guard is trained to operate effectively in such environments as a last resort when local police and sheriffs are overwhelmed by rioting. However, if state and local government do not act, the president may federalize the National Guard and deploy them. There may even be rare circumstances in which the Guard may not be sufficient to handle a large-scale crisis. Now, one can only hope and pray, even the perception that we arrive at that um, at that impasse uh, would approach. He goes on, or they go on to write, for example, President Eisenhower and Kennedy both deployed regular military forces during several desegregation emergencies without state consent. The refusal of state and local authorities to stop the destruction of a city by riots should provide the emergency authority necessary to take such an extraordinary measure of last resort. 
We fervently hope and pray that state and local authorities will promptly restore law and order should there be further outbreaks of rioting. But if not, President Trump has the authority. Now, they conclude by writing, notwithstanding the nonstop hostility of the news media, President Trump has established a record of being cautious and restrained when using military power. And they go on uh, from there. Again, this is a a letter that was signed um, by a number of uh, retired and current uh, military uh, individuals, 42 Army officers, four Air Force officers, one retired Navy officer, initiated by um, General Retired William G. Boynkin. Again, I just hope and pray we don't come to the point where that is necessary. But in the absence of local authorities putting an end to the violent expression of, uh, of protest, uh, something must be done, they are arguing, and I think many people who are looking on would agree. Is America coming to a cultural revolution? Roger Hell uh, asked the question and points out that this country is coming to a critical junction as, a, uh, as it relates to the freedoms we enjoy, freedoms many nations around the world have never known. Ronald Reagan saw these problems years ago and said, freedom is a fragile thing and is never more than one generation away from extinction. It's not ours by inheritance. It must be fought for and defended constantly by each generation, for it comes only once to a people. Those who have known freedom and then lost it have never known it again, end quote. Well, after World War II, the communists took over China and began to transform the country into what Chairman Mao envisioned. The results were devastating as millions died, but it took, it took a turn for the worse in 1966. In that summer, students launched their own social justice program. They began to overturn the entire structure of the Chinese people. Nothing was safe from their fight for justice, end quotes. Well, the, uh, the way to accomplish this was to eliminate what they perceived as the nation's problems. Putting on their red armbands, they proceeded to deconstruct the social fabric of the nation. The patriarchal system, the old ideas of their culture had to go. That included old customs, old habits, old culture, and old ideas. Everyone was on the bandwagon at the beginning, the media included. Christians were also on board at first. But then Chinese literature, paintings, buildings, and temples, think churches, were destroyed. Tombs of ancient leaders, including Confucius, were destroyed. Then they began destroying the homes of the wealthy, the educated, and anyone they considered politically incorrect. That's a contemporary use of the term. Trials, trials were held for those found guilty. Everyone, were, uh, everyone was uh, sentenced and many killed. It wasn't long after uh, this that the police were eliminated. The students formed their own police force called the Red Guard. The nation had already suffered over 40 million deaths under Mao's Great Leap Forward. That was from 47 to 58. The Cultural Revolution resulted in another 30 million deaths. Once the killing frenzy began, there was no way to stop it. Christians who supported the movement in the beginning found themselves in the crosshairs of the Red Guard. Once power was given, it was impossible to take back. Now, does any of this sound familiar? Well, of course, there are elements that we are seeing today, but I don't want to overstate what we're seeing. Destroy the states of the past or the statues of the past. Remove anything uh, that you find offensive. Silence the voices of anyone you think um, you uh, did not think the way they did. Wrong thinking, disagreeing could cost you your life. If you were lucky, you went to a re-education camp, but there were other measures much more harsh. It's hard to fathom this happening in the United States. But it's more it's easier to fathom that now than it was perhaps just months ago. China is not the only example. The same bloodbath took place during the Bolshevik Russian Revolution and Pol Pot in his reign of terror in Cambodia and Vietnam, which was not nearly as bad as Cambodia. It happened in Cuba and it happened in Venezuela. 
Have you wondered why cities run by those with a particular persuasion are releasing the looters and rioters without any bond or bail and no fine for the damage they do? Let me assure you, and this is a quote from Roger Hale, let me assure you that no matter how dark it looks, there are more of us than there are of them. The Cultural Revolution succeeded because Mao had taken all means of self-defense away from the people, as was done in all of the nations mentioned above. Something to think about. Now, is he talking about uh, the fact that there are armed citizens? Is that what he's referring to? Or is he referring to citizens who embrace the ideals, although unmet in some circumstances, of of uh, the United States of America that still hold to the principles outlined in the Bill of Rights and the Constitution. Uh, Whatever he specifically means by that, is America coming to a cultural revolution and is there going to be resistance that's meaningful? Now, again, I don't want to overstate what's happening today to suggest that we are at that moment, but there are certainly elements that we've seen in previous cultural revolutions uh, that are very familiar to us today. What will be the next uh, steps by those in positions of authority? Will lawlessness be permitted? Will efforts to quell uh, violence be met with such force that ultimately we find ourselves in a position that is uh, much more familiar, much more similar, I guess I should say, uh, to what uh, we've seen in other cultural revolutions? Something certainly to think about. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll talk about uh, Governor Kate Brown. She announced new requirements for face coverings and businesses to stop spreading the the spread of COVID-19. We'll talk more about that when we return. Uh, We're also going to talk about what students are now going to be required to wear in schools and, for that matter, all the time. And what did people say about wearing masks in the 1918 pandemic? Well, it sounds rather familiar. We'll tell you what they said then and how familiar it sounds to what we're saying now. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, Governor Kate Brown announced new requirements for face coverings and businesses to stop spreading the COVID-19 in light of the continued spread in Oregon, including troubling rise in cases of community spread. That cannot be traced and contained. The governor today announced new statewide health and safety measures, including new requirements for face coverings and businesses. Effective this Friday, unless the spread of COVID-19 begins to slow, the governor made clear that additional restrictions will be necessary. Quoting the governor, she said, Oregon, we ventured out onto the ice together and that ice has begun to crack. Before we fail, before we fall through the ice, we need to take steps to protect ourselves and our community. The governor said, so it's time for further actions to slow the spread of this disease. Keep in mind, this is not um, an on or off switch. This disease is something that for the... uh, Uh, For the time being, we must live with. However, when we see numbers rise, we must respond in turn. We must dim the lights. We must scale back, limit our interactions, take more precautions, end quote. Well, beginning uh, on Friday, the following new requirements will apply in the state of Oregon. Face coverings will be required for all Oregonians ages five and up in indoor public spaces and outdoors when six feet of distance cannot be maintained. Face coverings will be required even in cases of physical exertion indoors and out and uh, outdoors when six feet distance cannot be maintained. So if you're involved in some kind of a sporting activity and you're within close proximity, you have to wear a mask. The maximum indoor capacity limit is capped at 100 for all venues in phase two counties and for restaurants and bars in phase one and two counties. Uh, restaurants and bars will be required to stop serving customers at 10 p.m. statewide. 
Uh, and uh, these are the, the changes that the governor announced earlier today. You can hear recordings of her press conference at various local news sites, uh, but that was the announcement that she made earlier today. We also learned that nearly all Oregon students will be required to wear masks in school. Uh, children ages five and older must wear masks in public starting Friday. This, of course, is an update to the earlier rules that exempted them from rules requiring adults to do so. Should the new requirement continue into September, nearly all Oregon public school students will be required to wear face masks or coverings during in-person instruction. So a lot of these schools are going to be staggering Monday, Wednesday. You go to school Tuesday, Thursday, your classmates go to school All of you will be wearing face masks unless those numbers go down, according to the directive uh, the president or excuse me, the governor uh, issued earlier today. Well, there was an interesting uh, article that I thought was uh, uh, might help put things into perspective that had the headline Charles Duncan writing. um, What did people say about wearing masks in the 1918 pandemic? It sounds familiar, but I thought it was uh, worth sharing. According to uh, the article in 1918, the Spanish flu that actually originated in Fort Riley, um, Kansas City, well, that that's debatable. But anyway, it swept America and the world. American soldiers spread the disease across the country, then across the Atlantic. CDC estimates put the final death toll at about 50 million worldwide. Well, a different pandemic swept across the world a century ago. It killed some 60 million. Schools and businesses closed. Many cities required people to wear face masks to slow the spread of the devastating influenza outbreak of 1918. Back then, just like today, some people balked at the idea of the government telling them what to do. Now, some protested and openly defied local orders as World War I raged in Europe. Um, The assistant director at the University of Michigan Center for the History of Medicine wrote this month, for the conversation. About 2,000 people of the so-called Anti-Mask League that gathered in San Francisco in 1919 for a rally, they denounced the mask ordinance and proposed ways to defeat it. Again, sounds familiar. Face masks have been a political and cultural flashpoint in the United States as the country struggled to contain the coronavirus pandemic as it was back in the flu pandemic, uh, which has um, uh, the Coronavirus pandemic has killed 140,000 people in the country since March. In Michigan, some people carried assault rifles into the state capitol um, this spring to protest the governor's orders, drawing international attention. Similar protests played out in cities all across the country. Well, during the flu pandemic, Americans in 1918 and 1919, noncompliance and outright defiance quickly became a problem. Uh, Navarro, the historian, wrote of the face mask mandates of that time. Many businesses unwilling to turn away shoppers uh, wouldn't bar unmasked customers from their stores. Workers complained that masks were too uncomfortable to wear all day. Well, much like today, some people pleaded for compliance. Headlines from Chicago newspapers in 1919 declared open face sneezers to be arrested. Police uh, raid saloons in war on influenza. Keep church windows open. Non-essential crowds barred in epidemic war. Well, in October of 1918, in an advertisement in the Oakland, California Tribune, um, the Red Cross said a gauze mask is 99% proof against influenza. Well, we now know that would not be the case. The ad continued, doctors wear them. Those who do not wear them get sick. The man or woman or child who will not wear a mask now is a dangerous slacker. 
1918 pandemic started in the spring, but didn't raise many alarms until that fall, killing more than 20 million people in a matter of weeks in October and November. That's according to the National Archives. The scale of the disease created mass panic. Churches and schools were closed, while local businesses and services that remained open struggled with the staff shortages. Too frightened to go out in public, people isolated themselves in their homes, leaving the streets nearly empty, according to the National Archives. In late November of 1918, the Rocky Mountain News in Denver quoted the city's mayor as he called for everyone to wear face masks. The wearer is not only protecting himself, but is protecting others. It is the moral obligation of every person to wear a mask, he wrote, in a streetcar or in a store. Well, health experts have made similar um, morality pleas with the coronavirus. If you won't wear a mask for yourself, do it for others, they say. Cloth face coverings are meant to protect other people in case the wearer is unknowingly infected but does not have symptoms. That's a quote from the Centers for Disease Control in 2020. So how did Denver's mandate go over 102 years ago? It was almost totally ignored by the people. In fact, the order was a cause of mirth, according to a report from the Rocky Mountain News at the time. So some things uh, never change while other things stay pretty much the same. Well, they're telling us that screen time with kids is causing developmental problems for them. They are exceeding exponentially the amount of time that's been recommended for them. You might want to talk to your kids about this. Uh, Recently, the World Health Organization, it's not necessarily a reliable source all the time, strongly discouraged parents from letting kids under two use any gadgets, while kids over two should only spend an hour per day on screens. A survey of some 500,000 teenagers in 2017 found that the rising number of teens suffered from depression due to increased use of their phones and tablets. The screen time had a worse impact on females, according to the researchers at the University of Michigan and the CDC. Screen time is impacting the development of both kids and teens, they concluded. Well, a Dr. Pamela Hurst Della Pietra, a well-known child development expert and founder of the interdisciplinary research organization Children and Screens, said that there have been some 28 percent increase in psychiatric emergency department visits related to suicide attempts since 2011. The CDC said suicide rates are up 30 percent in more than half of U.S. cities, rather states, since 1999. We're not saying we have found causality at the moment, but it's concerning enough that we need more research, Hurst Della Pietra said. There cognitive effects with screen time, including retention and learning, memory, impulsivity, and the possible academic performance. Another uh, child and adolescent psychiatrist agrees. She said that kids need time to develop properly in their younger years. Excess screen time discourages that. Brains of children grow rapidly and in response to their experience and environment. Their brains also cannot differentiate between reality and make-believe. Therefore, children's brains react to blue screens and develop systems in response to their experiences as though whatever they do with their phone or tablet is reality. This is particularly true with video games, she says. With younger kids, when they fall to the grass in a game, kids only experience the visual stimulus. They don't experience the sound, the feeling, or the pain of falling, and they don't experience the loss of balance. Kids lose out on developing many parts of their brain and body when they're on tablets and phones, DeSilva says. Indeed, um, they pointed to a 2018 study by the National Institutes of Health that teens aged 13 and 18 now experience increased anxiety. Now, experts say for teens, the issue has to do with constant comparison. So it doesn't just develop. It's not just a developmental issue or a problem perceiving reality correctly. Um, Hurst Della Pietra says that teens using social media on their phones are constantly comparing themselves to others. 
others. A medical advisor for the Your Doctors Online, uh, dot online rather, said that the issue with screen time has to do with replacing healthy habits. Kids and teens who are on their phones are not outside enjoying the summer weather, exercising or spending time with other kids. Parents of children 18 months to 24 months can introduce digital media, but they should choose high-quality educational programming and watch the programming with their child to be able to provide running commentary and answer children's questions. But regardless, it needs to be limited. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. Alaska. So there was a pretty powerful 7.8 earthquake. It struck the Alaska Peninsula late Tuesday. It triggered a tsunami warning that sent residents fleeing to higher ground. It was called off without any damaging waves, thankfully. According to the U.S. Geological Survey, this uh, 7.8 magnitude quake, it struck last night at about 10.12 local time. It was centered in the waters about 65 miles south southeast of Perryville. Uh, at a depth of about 17 miles deeper than an earlier estimate. Well, it triggered a tsunami warning for the South uh, Alaska coastline, the Alaska Peninsula, and the Aleutian Islands that was uh, called off early uh, today, about two hours after that quake. Well, the tsunami warning sirens could be heard blaring in videos posted on social media with residents heeding warning signs to evacuate. On Kodiak Island, the local high school opened its doors for evacuees, as did the local Catholic school, according to local media. Uh, We've got a high school full of people, said the superintendent at the Kodiak School District. I've been passing out masks since the first siren sounded. Everything's as calm as can be. We've got about three to 400 people all wearing masks. Well, the Pacific Tsunami Warning Center said there'd been no threat of uh, to other U.S. or Canadian Pacific coasts in uh, Northern America. And according to the USGS, since 1900, there have been six other earthquakes, magnitude 7.0 and higher, within 155 miles. Tuesday's quake, uh, the largest of those, was at 8.2. That was back in 1938. Meanwhile, the fourth named storm of the Central Pacific hurricane season strengthened into a hurricane on Wednesday and may impact Hawaii by the weekend. The U.S. National Hurricane Center in Miami said that Hurricane Douglas is packing maximum sustained winds of 75 miles per hour, is moving west at 14 miles an hour. The storm is about 1,700 miles east, southeast of Hilo, uh, Hawaii. It's forecast to turn west, northwest, and increase speed by late today. The storm's been continuously strengthening as a tropical storm with maximum sustained winds increasing Wednesday morning to 75 miles an hour. Additional strengthening is expected during the next couple of days. Hurricane force winds extend outward about 15 miles from the center, while tropical storm force winds extend outward up to 80 miles. There are no coastal watches or warnings in effect, but the forecast cone from the hurricane center shows the storm could approach the Hawaiian Islands by the second half of this weekend. So it's going to be uh, around for a bit. Well, Joe Biden accused Elizabeth Warren last year of holding an angry, unyielding viewpoint. She embraced that label and slammed Biden as naive for thinking he could work with Republicans as president. She warned Democrats against picking a Washington insider, pointedly refused to endorse Biden until weeks after exiting the race. Well, now those bitter primary clashes are a distant memory. That's how politics works. Warren, a Massachusetts senator and the leading progressive, has become an unlikely confidant and advisor to Biden, the presumptive Democratic presidential nominee. Uh, They talk every 10 days or so, according to aides, uh, to both politicians who spoke on condition of anonymity to freely describe their relationship. Those um, forums have provided opportunities for Warren to make a case on 
to top uh, policy issues to Biden, who ran a more centrist primary uh, campaign. He adopted Warren-endorsed plans on personal bankruptcy, expanding Social Security benefits, canceling student loan debt for millions of Americans. She also helped devise important portions of his post-pandemic economic recovery proposal. Meanwhile, she's lending Biden her progressive credentials and frequently hosts campaign events for him, including one recent fundraiser that brought in about $6 million. Uh, Only former President Barack Obama secured a greater haul. Well, vanquished presidential hopefuls are often called on to rally around the nominee, especially if they want to become vice president, a role Warren has expressed interest in. But the relationship between the pair is notable, given that they were uh, never particularly close before. It also illustrates a more pragmatic side of Warren, whose presidential campaign was built around economic populism that championed everyday Americans over the rich with a slogan, dream big, fight hard. She's interested in problem solving. She's more practical than she sometimes seemed during the campaign, says Deval Patrick, who's a former Massachusetts governor who briefly ran for president himself. She fights for the outcome, but because she's so smart and so creative, he says, she can think of more than one thing at a time. Biden has promised to pick a woman as his vice presidential running mate, has um, faced pressure from African-American activists to choose a back running, a black running mate as uh, an acknowledgement of their political importance and in response to institutional racism. Warren, who is white, nevertheless remains the finalist. And yes, she is just that and not a mixture of something else, as we all now know. Well, interestingly, um, Mr. Pompeo has established a commission on unalienable rights, Liberty begins by acknowledging the unalienable rights granted to humans by our creator. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo knows this, which is why he established the Commission on Unalienable Rights last year to determine what U.S. foreign policy objectives should be regarding those rights. Last Thursday, the commission released that report, and it begins with the vision America's founders established in the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. Granted, the report acknowledges the U.S. has not always lived up to these values, and our leadership in the world depends on our example at home. But the U.S., imperfect as it has been, is dealing with China, while Beijing is currently suppressing the Uyghur people in forced labor, whether for Nike products or masks or, even worse, oppression. And that's to say nothing of the tens of millions of Chai Coms slaughtered in the 20th century. A clear statement of the foundation of rights is therefore useful. Well, from a domestic pr- uh, perspective, one of the biggest points of contention in America is the definition of the word rights. And this report is designed to address that in a way that's consistent with those founding documents. America's founders and today's conservatives view rights as those listed in the Bill of Rights and the right to free speech and religion to keep and bear firearms, fair uh, justice system, and so on. Uh, by contrast, others uh, hold uh, that view rights as things that are provided by government or taxpayers, free education, free health care, free abortion, free money itself. So the report is designed to clarify and is a rather interesting delineation of what unalienable rights actually are. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Tomorrow on the program, we're going to talk with John Plake with the American Bible Society. We'll take a look at the state of the Bible 2020, particularly as it relates to this pandemic that has changed everything for all of us. Are people reading their Bible or aren't they? We'll take a look at that in my conversation with John Plake tomorrow 
on the program. Yesterday, I ended the uh, the program with a survey that Pew had done on whether or not people believe that uh, they could be moral without believing in God. Dr. Miroslav Wolf of Yale Divinity School, in response to that same study, said, I think it is possible to be moral and not believe in God. He said, I say that as a Christian and Christian theologian. I know a lot of people who do. But there is a huge caveat behind that statement. I don't think that's uh, that it's possible to justify, to legitimize being moral, so to speak, to give reasons for being moral unless you believe in God. I think the faith in God is a condition. I mean, how do you define morality? How is there an agreed morality and on what grounds? Well, the question itself was part, as I mentioned, of a 2019 global survey by the Pew Research Center. It was called the Global God Divide. The results released Monday asked more than 38,000 people in 34 countries if they thought believing in God was necessary to being moral and to being a good person. So the phrase that's uh, sort of the phrase of choice these days, he was a good person. Well, Jacob um, Posture, who's associate director of research at the Pew Research Center, said that age, income, and education were all driving forces in the outcome of this survey. Those who are lower income, those who have less education, those who are older tend to be more likely to say that, you know, believe in God, belief in God is necessary in order to be moral. They're more likely to say that God is important. Well, he also went on to say that the first thing he pondered about the question is what kind of morality is imagined by people when they answer this question? What is morality apart from God? Uh, That was not part of the Pew study. The question was asked in the context of culture. That indicates there's a challenge to understanding the the result of the survey. What it means to be moral or good is different in different cultures. Well, in the recent book, Seeing Jesus from the East, there's a fresh look at history's most influential figures, Abdu Murray and Ravi Zacharias. They write about the differences between Eastern and Western cultures to give you some idea of what was meant. They conclude that Western cultures tend to be more individualistic, where your identity is not based on your family or your tribe, it's what you make of it yourself. But the authors found that Eastern cultures are collectivistic and communal, which means that each person's value, dignity, integrity, and very identity is derived from how he or she is perceived by the community. In Eastern cultures, going against the grain of a culture norm is a huge sin, one that rarely garners a blip for Westerners, uh, they point out. Well, the other issue for Wolf, who is the director of Yale's Center for Faith and Culture, is how you justify your morality. Why are you good? What makes you good? What is your motivation? Well, he says he had very incredibly saintly nanny, and if you asked her why she was moral, she would stutter. She would have no particular reason to give uh, for her morality, but nonetheless lived a moral life. But that's different than asking the question, is it possible for us to have good reasons and justify actions, uh, moral action, without there being a God that is fundamental to our moral structure of the world? And in answer to that question, I would say, no, it's difficult. What he means is, if there is no God, no objective standard for morality that exists outside of each and every one of us, then it's difficult to give an empirical and unjustifiable reason for why we are moral or insist others to be so as well. Well, here in the United States, where freedom of religion is one of our bedrock principles, the percentage of people who paired God and morality is closer to uh, the global results at 44%. But in our neighbor to the north in Canada, for example, the figure is only 26%. America is a bit of an anomaly in that religion remains very strong here. Belief in God is high, but the number of people who believe God is necessary for morality has dropped significantly. 14 points from 58% in 2002, the last time Pew did the same survey.
Well, part of the study's um, other findings may offer something of a clue in answer to the question why. Generally speaking, the higher the gross domestic product of a company, uh, a country rather, the less likely the belief that God and morality go hand in hand. Sweden, which is arguably the most secular country with one of the highest per capita incomes, had the lowest percentage of people who contend a belief in God and the morality go together. Only 9% uh, said living well can be a form of worship in and of itself. Wealth has become a god in and of itself in some ways, and it combined also with certain striving for fame, with certain availability of entertainment, Wolf pointed out in the survey. We invest ourselves in something from which we derive our sense of worth, from which we derive our sense of direction in life, and that becomes a replacement for God. That becomes an idol for us, idolatry in the 21st century. Well, the good news and the sign of hope for Wolf is that despite the plethora of different uh, religions and cultures in the world, the concept of God is fairly universal. So that's some encouragement. God reveals himself, we know, in Scripture through his creation, through Scripture, and through his Son, Jesus Christ. He is there. He speaks if we are ready to listen and to hear. Hey, we are out of time. I want to thank James Blend for producing today's program, Clark Hilton for engineering, and Dan Rice for the use of his office. I want to thank you for um, making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day, and I hope you'll join us tomorrow as we take a look at the state of the Bible 2020 with John Pike with the American Bible Society. Have a good night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.